Welcome to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch, and this is a podcast of conversations with doctors, developers, and decision makers that are playing in the Australian health tech scene today. With me today is Anna Johnson. Anna is one of Australia's most respected experts in privacy law and practice. She has qualifications in law, public policy and management, and 26 years experience in legal, policy and research roles. Anna has a breadth of perspectives and a wealth of experience in dealing with privacy and data governance issues. She's the former Deputy Privacy Commissioner for New South Wales, so she really knows regulatory perspective well, and since 2004 is the Director for consulting firm Salinger Privacy. Anna holds a first-class honours and degree in law, a Master of Public Policy and Honours, a Graduate Certificate in Management, a Graduate Diploma of Legal Practice and a Bachelor of Arts, plus a number of other relevant and well-regarded certificates and industry associations. Anna no longer practices as a solicitor, so I am allowed to tell the occasional lawyer joke apparently, which is great because that's what I'll probably do. Anna, thanks so much for joining. <laughs> You're welcome, Peter. Great to be here. Um, we, we, I think we came across each other because you were doing some stuff with MSIA before, the Medical Software Industry Association. Yeah, I that- presented at their annual conference recently and then also ran a workshop about um, privacy by design. So for anyone in that, um, that space of designing uh, health-related technology, how to understand um, the kind of the skills and strategies that will help you build privacy compliance into the design upfront, rather than trying oh, to retrofit wow. later. Wow, love to get into more of that detail a bit later on in the in the conversation too. So you know you're, you're well well primed for for the the health tech space, and it's kind of cool to have um, someone on the show that um, you know is involved in many different industries. You're, you're not a vendor, you're, you're, you're another player in this kind of big space in an area that's super important these days um, in our area of health tech being data privacy and security and whatnot. So I'm super excited about this conversation. So tell me a little bit more about Salinger Privacy, um, what you guys do and, and, and where your clients operate. Yeah, sure. So, um, well, basically we do all things privacy. Um, so we do consulting, training, and we offer resources. And one of the things I love about working in the privacy space is it's just this fascinating intersection between law, ethics, and technology. There's, you know, there's always something new. There's always a new technology coming around the corner that we have to get our heads around and, and mm. help our clients um, manage that intersection between their legal obligations, ethics, customer expectations, and then, you know, what the technology can and what the technology should be allowed to do. Mm. Um, So we work across, as I said, uh, consulting, training and resources, and we are an Australian business. We've got clients across Australia. Occasionally, we dip our toe into the waters of New Zealand as well. Um, But our clients come from, they're quite the mix. So um, quite a lot of government clients, but also businesses from the big end of town, um, the non to the non-profits and also the small and um, very much tech startup space. So we have clients everywhere from the yeah that kind of you know top ISX companies down to the you know one person got a great new tech idea with working out of their spare bedroom at the moment <laughs> kind of space. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice. Um, so how much of it do you reckon is in that health space? Yeah, health is really common. It's probably the second biggest sector after government. Um, okay. Although, of course, you know, often government is also in the health sector. So, um, mm. so sometimes our clients will be the health service provider. So, someone directly in that health service provision space, and they just want to make sure they're dotting their eyes, crossing their t's in the way that they're collecting and using their patients' data. Um, but more typically, where where um, 
not so much the direct service provision, but all the organisations that use and collect and, and hold and store health information. So sometimes that's um, insurance companies, for example. Yeah. Sometimes it's governments working in public policy, um, organisations getting into the data analyt analytics space, so focusing yes. particularly on um, you know health and, and disability data, for, um, for example. Um, and then there's been some really big ticket kind of projects we've worked on. So we worked on the privacy impact assessment on the original design for um, my health record back when it was originally called the personally controlled electronic health record, yeah. um, the original setup of the national disability insurance scheme. So um, we've been involved in privacy impact assessments very early on in those very, very big ticket government projects, which, which touch on health and disability data in particular. So, so in in health in particular, then what are, what are some of the biggest privacy concerns you see today that that pop up? So, what I think is quite interesting about the health sector, um, and and it makes it different to other sectors, is the health sector um, is a standout, but in a bad way, unfortunately. Yeah, right. Um, so, the health sector. Yeah consistently tops the list of sectors reporting notifiable data breaches in Australia. So, um, and, and when we talk about a notifiable data breach, we're talking about when personal information has either been lost, subject to unauthorised access, or subject to an unauthorised disclosure. Yeah, because that was, that was relatively recently, wasn't it? That, well, kind of recently, that that, that was that, like, that something changed that meant that companies needed to be more transparent with that kind of Thing that yeah, absolutely. So the law was yeah. changed in February 2018 to make right. um, notification of if, so if you have this kind of data breach and if it's likely to result in serious harm to one or more individuals, it's now the law in Australia that you need to notify both the Privacy Commissioner's Office and those affected individuals. So you're, you is know, that, your is patient. That like the, is that just the big companies or the small companies too? No, so in the health sector, it covers any health service provider regardless of their size. So you like might a clinic, be a... Like a, a a one-person physiotherapy business, yeah. um, you know, or, or an independent locum, you are yeah. covered by the Federal Privacy Act. So regardless of your size, all health service providers are covered. Um, outside the health sector, there is an exemption for small businesses, um, but that exemption does not apply to health service huh. providers. So the health yeah. sector is already called out for... Um, I guess expectations of a higher level of privacy protection mm. for businesses, no matter their size, in in the health sector, just because of you know patients' expectations. And so I think yeah, one of the things that makes the health sector different is patient expectations. Um, so it's not that the type of privacy risks or privacy issues are different for health technology, for example, technology design, as for any other type of technology design. But the difference is that patients' expectations about the protection of their health data are, are much higher. There's just this sort of intuitive, if it's my health information, it must be kept absolutely private. Um, but also the consequences of privacy breaches tend to be higher when you're talking about health information compared with, say, um, you know, the accidental disclosure of someone's credit card details. Yeah, there's some financial risks, but but those risks can be resolved in a relatively straightforward way. I don't want to minimise those risks, but um, it's quite a different story in terms of the um, repercussions individuals can face if their health information is disclosed um, without yeah. authority. So that might be, it could be discrimination, embarrassment, um, implications for their employment, implications for insurance and, and all the rest. That's what makes the 
challenges for people working in technology, in, te in the health sector, in technology, so much higher. Not, not that, as I said, not that the nature of the privacy risks themselves are terribly different. It's just that the the expectations are higher and the consequences are worse mm, if you have a data mm. breach. So, so you mentioned that you guys do privacy reviews. What what mm -hmm. what what is a privacy review exactly? So we, um, we do two different kinds. So one is called a privacy impact assessment and the other is generally called a privacy audit or a privacy compliance review. And the difference really is um, where, where you're at in the design process for what we're reviewing. So if you are at the design stage of a new project, new technology project, for example, we get in at the design stage and do what's called a privacy impact assessment. If you want us to review something that's already up and running, so your business as usual, we basically call that a privacy audit. Um, but regardless of which one of those we're doing, hmm. um, we ask the same kind of questions. And regardless of whether it's, um, say, the design of software, it might be the design of a business process, it might be the design of a paper form. It's, it doesn't have to be, you know, a high-tech project to need this kind of review. Hmm. Um, so regardless of the nature of the project, we tend to ask the same questions. So, you know, can and should we collect this data? can and should we use it for this particular purpose? Um, who can we disclose it to? How do we keep it safe? Mm. So, so when we look at a new project, for example, um, we look at two broad things. One is data flows and the other is data governance. So when um, what I describe as data flows, what we're looking at is what personal information is being collected, how is it going to be used, who will it be disclosed to? So those three points, collection, use and disclosure. And for each of those, we then ask, is this going to be appropriate? Meaning, is it going to be lawful? So is it going to comply with the privacy principles that govern collection, use and disclosure? Mm. But not just is it going to be lawful, is it going to meet your customers, you know, your patients' expectations? Is it going to be proportionate to a, a legitimate business need? Mm. Um, and is there, in, critically, is there a more privacy protective way you can achieve that business objective? Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're always trying to come up with, you know, helping our, our clients come up with the most privacy protective design mm. of a technology, of a form, of whatever it is, um, but in a way that still achieves the business's objectives. So once we've settled those questions about authorising the data flows and making sure that they're all lawful and appropriate, then we look at data governance. So we usually start with looking at transparency. So have you communicated clearly to your customers um, about those data flows, you know, how their personal information is going to be collected, used and disclosed so that they actually understand what's going to happen. You know, I, I talk about the no surprises rule. No one likes to be surprised what's going to happen yeah. with their data. Um, and if they have, if they're going to have choices, um, is there a really easy way for them to manage those choices? You know, is it as, as straightforward as a swipe left or right on the app to, to say yes or no to something? Um, mm -hmm. And, and one thing that's really important is in terms of transparency is for organisations to separate out um, what we see as three different things but are often bundled together. Um, so those three things are your privacy policy, a collection notice explaining at the point of collection what it is you're doing with the person's information um, and a consent mechanism if you're going to rely on consent. So those three things serve three quite different purposes, but especially online, the design practice is often, um, companies will jumble the three all together into one long legalistic confusing document and then they make users just 
tick a box. <laughs> and, um, and you can and you can click the, yeah, the, the link you know, to the go read it. Chance, you can click yeah. the link to go read it, but you it's not down the bottom. Yeah, yeah. yeah which, and we know no one ever reads it. I don't no even read them. So we so in terms of data governance, we look um, importantly at transparency, and then finally we look at other data governance questions like: Have your staff been trained? Um, do you have a clear pathway for managing any requests you get for patients to access their data or correct mm -hmm. it? Do you have a clear pathway for managing privacy complaints? Do you have a data breach response plan in place? Do your staff know what to do in the event of a data breach? So, all of those things, data flows and data governance. Um, form part of whether we're, whether we're doing a privacy impact assessment of a new project or a privacy audit of an existing business yeah. process. Um, and again, whether it's software or something else, we look at uh, both data flows and data governance as part of our privacy review. Yeah, and, and if I think about it, from my experience, often, you know, if I'm thinking as a health tech vendor, not many of them go out with any kind of massive intention on, I don't know, stealing patients' information or doing something cynical with the, uh, with the data. But I've seen in the past too, it's not, it's not about the, the intention of what they're going to do with it, but it's almost the perception of what's going to happen. Or, or So having that kind of review or someone outside of the business to do that sounds like a pretty sensible thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and certainly in my experience having worked in a, you know, in a regulatory role in the Privacy Commissioner's Office, um, the vast majority of privacy complaints and the vast majority of privacy breaches and data breaches are not coming from a point of, um, you know, malicious conduct or deliberately mm. people doing the wrong thing. It, it's accidents and it's oversights yeah. and it's people simply not understanding what their obligations are or understanding that there are alternative ways to design things so um absolutely yeah I, I very very rarely see privacy breaches arising from deliberate misconduct yeah, yeah. um it's much more um coming from a place of of ignorance and and yes. sometimes people trying to do the right thing you know trying to be helpful trying to help the client yeah. um but accidentally doing the wrong thing yeah, that, that, that can happen in healthcare too. It's all quick. Oh, can you just send this across to me? I really need it because of this yeah. particular situation or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Seems to be the right thing to do. It's a balance. Um, so I'm thinking about that um, in our world, AI, artificial intelligence, that's a big point of discussion mm. regarding privacy for, for me anyway at the moment. Um, how well do you think policy is keeping up with the rate of pace of innovation in Australia more broadly as AI is a really innovative space and there's other things going on too? What's How's... How's policy keeping up? Yeah, I think there's a constant challenge, um, whether it's AI or any other kind of new technology, there's always this challenge of law and policy keeping up. Um, the first point I'd make is that privacy laws are designed deliberately. They're drafted deliberately to be technology neutral and format neutral. So the mm. idea is that they shouldn't actually be always playing catch up. We've tried to anticipate in the drafting of our privacy laws um, technologies that haven't even been thought of yet and and our starting point with those laws is broad framed gen, kind of general principles um, and it's all about respecting humans autonomy and dignity mm, mm. Um, so uh, sort of one answer is the law is keeping up because it's it was already anticipating new yeah, technologies okay. and that those new technologies should be um, being managed under the umbrella of existing laws and policies. Mm. But at the same time, obviously, mm -hmm. um, 
the law is constantly being um, challenged in terms of how workable it is in practice. And certainly with, with artificial intelligence, the ethical and legal implications are something that not just in Australia, but governments around the world are grappling with right at the moment. So there's, um, there's projects trying to come up with legal and ethical frameworks to cover AI. Here in Australia, the Federal Department of um, Innovation and Industry has been working on something. Um, there's projects in the EU, there's projects in the US, there's a lot of activity going on at the moment. And lots of those um, projects around the world are focusing on things like the fairness of AI, as well as transparency. Yes. So in particular in Europe, um, some of your listeners may have heard of the GDPR already. So that's a privacy law in Europe that was recently reformed, the General Data Protection Regulation. Mm. And one of the reforms that was introduced is what you might call a right to algorithmic transparency. And so that means um, that's kind of the law's way of trying to ensure that algorithms developed from AI, you know, from machine learning and from AI mm. will be fair and accountable in terms of the impact of decision making that is made or decisions made based on those algorithms. So there's, mm. um, there's kind of a right to human review of, of computers decisions and there's rights to um, ask companies to pause or stop the processing and we would call that using or disclosing someone's personal information um, in order to ask for an explanation of, well, you know, how is this algorithm working yeah. so why you know why was i denied health insurance or why is why my premiums going up and my next door neighbors are going down for example yeah and it's even more like as we're moving to a space where um artificial intelligence is assisting in the process of diagnostics and 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 you know, looks at an image and says this patient has has cancer or not um you know that having that in a black box is um not you know, and then just, you know, let's ask the computer and wait to see what it says. There's a, so, so much ambiguity there. Um, yeah, absolutely. And and um, in a legal sense, I think courts will increasingly struggle with this as well. If someone is challenging a, a decision, um, so it might not be the, you know, the diagnosis, but maybe it's the health insurer's decision yeah. based on the diagnosis. Yes. Um, you know, we're going to pay your claim or we're not going to pay, pay your claim or whatever it is. Mm. Um you know, based on some kind of calculation of, of risk of that disease developing, for example, oh, or, yeah. or, you know. Um, if, if the algorithm can't be explained to a court, if it can't be explained to a judge, how is anyone going to be able to mm. determine whether that algorithm was working in a fair and accurate way? Yeah, so well. one of the really critical privacy principles is it's called the data quality principle or the accuracy principle. And it says that um, each of us has the right to ensure that only accurate, relevant, up-to-date, complete, not misleading information is used in decision-making about us. And that obviously becomes more critical. You know, the rubber hits the road where the decision is going to impact us negatively. So the decision is going to be, you don't get the insurance or we don't pay your claim. Um, you don't get the job. You don't get access to housing. You don't get access to, to credit, for example. Um, and so if you've got decisions made in a black box and no one can explain how they're made because, you know, there was some machine learning going on and the AI 
system came up with its own algorithm, um, how can anyone test, how can a court test whether or not that decision making and the data on which it was based was, you know, accurate, fair, relevant, up to date, etc. Yeah. So that's certainly one big challenge for AI, the, the, the sort of the transparency and the accountability for it. Um, now, I think the other big challenge or the other area where AI poses a, a challenge in terms of compliance with privacy law is the lawfulness of the data flows in the first place. So, um, you know, it's when I was talking about when we do a privacy review, we're looking at the data flows, meaning what personal information is collected, how it's used, who it's disclosed to. Mm. Um, and in the world of AI, your ability to lawfully collect, use or disclose data it's extremely hard to rely on consent as your lawful mechanism. Um, consent is, is by no means not is by no means the only lawful mechanism. There's lots of ways under the privacy principles that allow companies and governments to collect, use, and disclose personal information. Um, but quite often, consent is what organisations try to rely on. But in AI, it's it's really challenging. So if you think about um, to use your example, AI being used to diagnose some health conditions. Yeah. Much of the data used in the first place to, to train the machine learning that will create the AI, or will create the algorithm, that, that training data, what we call the training data, will have been collected for some other purpose. So it will have been years worth of data collecting about real hospitals being treated in, uh, real patients being treated yeah. in real hospitals. So, and that becomes the training data set for the machine learning. Mm. So it's fairly likely that the patients in the past were not asked to consent at that time to the sometime in the future use of their data for this quite different purpose. So yeah, not treating that them. wasn't even thought of at the time. Exactly. Was, yeah. So it's not just about treating you. At some yeah. point in the future, um, a machine will, will use your data to train <laughs> another machine to yeah. recognise patterns in data. So, yeah. But even now, if we started to ask patients for their consent, you know, as well as us treating you in hospital today, do you consent to your information being used for AI development in the future? Mm. How, how could a patient today possibly give an informed consent? Um, because the whole point of machine learning and AI is to kind of throw all the data in the mix and just see what pops out. It's not a, um, a kind of, if you like, old-fashioned kind of, you know, here's a research hypothesis. This is the question we're asking. Here's exactly yes. how we're going to conduct the experiment. Yes. So it's yes. not like a, a clinical trial where as a patient, um, I know what my disease is. I'm being offered a new kind of medicine. I've been warned about the possible side effects and I've had the chance to say yes or no. Mm. Um, AI and machine learning are based on quite different kinds of research practices, which don't usually involve that kind of one-on-one -on -one sit down discussion with an individual yeah. um it's it's based on very very large data sets to create those training data sets um it's based on historical data and and typically you, you don't go back and you don't have the ability to go back and ask for everyone's consent so um it's very difficult to rely on patient consent as the lawful basis for health information to be collected used or disclosed for ai purposes um yeah. As I said, it's not the only possibility, but quite often companies work on the assumption that consent is going to be their legal mechanism, and it turns out not to be um, 
kind of the pragmatic solution for them. But I don't think that that's something that's particularly well understood yet. What, what is the what is the solution then? Like, if consent isn't it, like, how how does a company doing AI in 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 health or any area, I guess, operate? So there are other legal mechanisms, and and one of them is. Um, and it depends, you know, which privacy law you're talking about, which jurisdiction you're in. But there's usually um, some kind of research exemption. And that usually, again, it differs kind of from state to state and federal and country to country. Um, but the research exemptions usually have some role for a human research ethics committee, which gets to weigh up the ethical considerations, think about where the public interest lies. And that committee usually has the power to waive the requirement for consent. So there is um, this kind of structured way to work through thinking about those issues. Um, And the National Health and Medical Research Council has um, guidelines on, you know, how to set up a human research ethics committee and what a properly constituted committee looks like and all of the factors that they need to, you know, there's guidelines about how they need to um, reach their kind of decision making um, so it, it's not as simple as simply, um, you know, <laughs> those the ticker box mandatory terms yeah. and conditions. Yeah. Um, that's not going to constitute a valid consent in privacy law. So that's just not the right legal mechanism in the mo- in the majority of cases for artificial intelligence kind of development. Wow, so much to to so much complexity to factor in, and you, it can going through even just the tip of the iceberg of all of that you, you can see a lot of work underneath it and questions and kind of um vagueness that that kind of speak to the reasons why the rate of innovation moves so much faster than than other areas that are important like policy um that's really interesting hey look so moving on what what should australian health tech software vendors be most concerned about when developing a solution today then um, I think, first of all, make sure you're thinking about both your legal obligations and your customers' expectations. Um, you know, the law is, and by the law, I'm talking about the privacy principles built into privacy law. Yes. The law tries to codify your basic ethical obligations, um, but it really sets the minimum kind of standard. And often your customers' expectations will set a higher standard than just legal compliance. So legal compliance is obviously necessary, but it really should just be considered the minimum baseline, mm. not um, not the entire set of things that you need to think about. Um, I mentioned before um, the role of consent is um, in reality quite fraught. So um, if you are relying on your patient's consent to do something with their health information you absolutely need to make sure that that consent is actually going to be valid under privacy law you know it will hold up to scrutiny um so you can't under privacy law you can't say that you're relying on a patient's consent if they actually had no choice to say no it has to be voluntary it has to be informed it has to be specific so it can't be included in mandatory terms and conditions for example Um, an opt-out model is not consent for example yes so as I said, consent is not the only legal mechanism. There are plenty of other mechanisms, but if that's the one you're relying on, you need to be really careful hmm. to get that right. Um, and another thing is to make sure that your technology 
has been designed with privacy in mind. So we talk about this concept of privacy by design, which is all about baking your privacy controls into the design of systems from the beginning, rather than trying to, um, you know, retrofit them in later. And I think, um, well, what I find usually is a lot of effort goes into the cybersecurity side of things, you know, keeping out the external bad actors. Um, And that's obviously incredibly important. Um, But our particular kind of expertise and our skill set is focused more on the, um, the internal actors. So when you are whether you're designing tech, you're configuring it, implementing it, you need to think about your customers, but also about your staff or your trusted users, your trusted insiders. So um, making sure that tech is designed so that staff or other authorised users only see the absolute minimum amount of personal information about your customers or your your patients, that they really need to do their job. Um, You know, the legislation says that you have to do this. A lot of people come back and say, oh, we've got a code of conduct for our employees. Mm. We make them all sign it, so that's okay. The law yeah. says that that is not enough. And, and um, you know, case law, come, basically the law that comes from court decisions and tribunal decisions backs that up, that just having, um, you know, letting all staff see all patient records but saying, oh, but they signed a code of conduct, um, that's not going to be enough. You won't be complying with your privacy legal obligations mm. if that's all you're doing. So you need, you obviously need things like role-based access controls, um, but there's a whole bunch of other privacy controls that can be built into tech design, and it will, it will depend on the kind of product you're, or service that you're designing. Um, but depending what it is you're doing, you know, if you're if you've got a data analytics project and you're using a data warehouse, for example, we would look at filtering out certain data fields, and then we'd look at masking other data fields from the view of particular user groups. Um, if you think about something like an e-health record system, you would limit the search functionality to prevent misuse. You know, the kind of scenario we're usually looking at is, um, you know, could a staff member look up health information about their partner or their ex-partner or, or their next-door neighbour? Um, so you might put in um, tests that users need to pass before they can even access yeah. customer records, for example. Um, rather than just enabling any any user to do a global search against any customer or patient name. So there's plenty of different things you can do. Um, so we use eight privacy design strategies to help guide our advice to our clients when we're reviewing technology design, software design. Um, and sometimes the solution lies in the design of the technology itself, but quite often it's outside the technology. So the solution might be or a mix of, um, you know, staff training, policies and procedures, um, back to that transparency issue, so how you communicate to your customers. There's lots of different angles we can come from when we're trying to um, mitigate for privacy risks. Wow, there's a lot to cover off. I'm sure there are many people listening in thinking there's probably a few things that that, that, that could be applied in um, in their business, in the healthcare space, whether it's they're providing the service or the the software that sits behind it, I think it's it's evident that it that it's something that's important to everyone from that single physio you mentioned right through to the big organisations that have got a lot more structure and process to handle this stuff, and even they get it wrong a lot too. So having um, a dedicated focus in that, like you guys, is particularly interesting. So um, thank you for sharing for, for for sharing your thoughts and insights on on that particular topic. Great. Thanks for having me on the show.
Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. Go do some stuff on our socials and website, share it with some people, and give us a nice review and a five-star rating because it all helps to spread the word and get people talking. Until next time, I'm out of here.